and I've always been huge into mythology, so I grew up with like the Arthurian legends and the Odyssey and the Iliad, and I took Latin for a number of years. And, uh, so yeah, that's that's kind of the any mythology books that I could get my hands on, and and like anything about dinosaurs. That's that, that was pretty much my my wheelhouse growing did, up. Did you like Edith Hamilton books? I didn't have any exposure to that. Um, all of the books that I had until I was old enough to have a job were books that I got from the like book sales where the, where the library would be selling off, you know, old paperbacks or whatever. Uh, and then, like for birthdays and holidays and stuff like that, my parents would let me go pick a book out of um, Barnes and Noble or, or one of the other. Walton books, which doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I miss uh, that. And Bookstar. And, <laughs> and it would always be, it would pretty much always be out of one of those two areas. It was always either coming out of like Star Wars or, or Dragonlance. Like those were my big ones. Because there was always like four new books that had come out in the last few months. Uh, and um, so I, I would kind of hyper focus on those areas and be like, oh, I, I got to i got to get the new book. i got to figure out what's going on. Uh, and, and I've always found it hard to start a new series. Um, and it, it's different today. You know, there's so many great fantasy series out there, great sci-fi series. And it's um, now with the addition of audiobooks and the production that's gone into audiobooks, where it's, it's almost like a play now. There's music and background sound effects and stuff like that. Um, it's much easier, like if somebody recommends something, I could just go buy the audiobook for 14 bucks and throw it on one painting. Uh, I don't have to like commit to a, 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 a chunk of time where I have to sit with just the book. And I know that's probably, there's a lot of people who are going to be like, oh God, you don't just sit and read. And I'm like, I, I don't have time. Uh, client work keeps me so busy that I always have to do two things at once. So instead of like having TV on in the background, I'll have a, an audio book on in the background or a podcast. It's funny because, um, well, reason I asked about Edith Hamilton is that's the first books that I've read that were about mythology. She was because she was a historian who talked about Greek mythology and told the myth, myth, Greek myths and Roman myths and uh, Nordic oh, myths. Sure. And I just found oh, yeah, it fascinating. For sure, I just haven't, I just haven't read it. It's, it's funny as I as I've gotten older, like the Wheel of Time series and sort of truth books and and all these things that like everyone else read when they were kids. Then somebody will be like, "Oh, you should read this thing," and and then I'll go and read it. And you know, it's funny uh, sometimes reading, going back and reading them now. It'll either be amazing and the, like the best thing ever or I'll read it and I'll be like mm, I think this might have been better when you were eight like, <laughs> and, and I have some of that like uh, like uh, you know I went back a couple of years ago and reread the uh, the Dragons trilogy by uh, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman the original three Dragonlance books and I was like ooh ooh like I, I mean you have those those memories from being a kid but it's definitely a book series that was somebody's D&D campaign when they were younger. And I'm like, the later books are much
much better. Like, yeah, I know. It's funny fun. how some books, like, I still love Agatha Christie. I'm a big murder mystery fan. I still love her. But, um, but, and I, the first mystery books I ever read were Ellery Queen because I had a crush on Tim Hutton who played Ellery Queen in the TV series when I was a kid. Um, and my father, when he saw we were interested in something, always got us books for our birthday or Hanukkah or something. Um, um, when I, I was, I, I have all my books and I actually pulled some of the old Ellery Queens out and I was like, this is really dated. Um, and, and some of the things are really, um, not, uh, acceptable today. Uh, yeah. Some of no, I, I definitely know what you mean, especially how when you go back to books that were maybe written in the late 70s or the 80s, I mean, I mean that's kind of, for me, those are older books. And you'll, I'll be like, ooh, the female characters are really, like, one-dimensional. Uh, like, if even that. Uh, and it, it, it can be, it can be interesting. And especially as a creative you know, uh, as you learn and grow, you kind of, sometimes your viewpoint can shift on material that you grew up on. Like, it, it definitely guided your path for a while. Like, it, it aimed you where you wanted to go. But as you grow beyond something, they don't always come with you. And I also think that, it, you know, like, certain people that are writers, I love, I love books, so... Sorry, <laughs> but, but certain, no, people, great. certain people who are right, like Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers, um, people from the Golden Age, the reason they're still read is because even though some things are not that good, because they're still, you know, I mean, it's uh, Agatha grew as she wrote because she wrote for five decades. And she traveled a lot in, in, after she met her second husband. So she, a lot of the bigotry that was in her early books disappeared as she got older. So it's sort of not fair, I guess, for me to compare it to other Golden Age authors who didn't live so long because you read them and it's like, uh, uh. But you can't read classic books without, you have to put yourself in the period. You can't, like, right. you it, can't. It's the same with classic movies. Yeah. It, you cannot take a film or a book and hold it to today's standards mm -hmm. of what is socially acceptable and normal. Now, if you're having a discussion about it, you can acknowledge that there are problems. Oh, yeah. But you can't go uh, banish this from all of existence. Because now, obviously, if it's like heinous or something like that, sure. But if it's some classic, you know, uh, and there's dialogue or something that was written and it's extremely dated or it's uh, uh, harmful to a specific group of people, you do have to look at it and go, yes, this is not okay, but when was this made? Exactly. Uh, Especially, like, classics from the early, like, uh, talkies, like, in the 20s. It's not fair 
to judge them by today's standards. No, not at all. Um, and as long as you're, like if, if, if it's being examined for the purpose of teaching, especially teaching younger people, uh, you know, it is important to present it through that lens of this is extremely dated, the viewpoints in this are wrong, however, this was important because of X, Y, Z, you know, like maybe it was a turning point for its particular medium. I think that's, I think that's why I really like what TCM does, uh, Turner Classic Movies, uh, because they, um, what they're doing, they do stuff like, they always introduce, and they always say what the problem is. They've always done that. But now they actually have a section that they call reframe. And what they do is, like, they take a movie like Gone with the Wind, and they explain that, you know, the book by Margaret Mitchell, who was the southern woman who was, grew up in that period in the 30s, 20s and 30s, where this all was, you know, the way it was, the way the world was, and she was a reporter as well as a writer, and and she they explained, yes, a lot of stuff is wrong, but you have to look, even though Hattie McDonald plays a maid, she's brilliant, and she won the first Academy Award ever won by a black woman, and it's just, there's so much good in it. So you just have to take it as a whole picture, and they tell you everything, and I think I, I was like, I was so glad that they're not throwing it out because it's, you know, there's bad stuff in it and there's good stuff in it. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to go that far back to find that stuff. I, I was on Disney Plus and uh, I was like, you know what I haven't seen in forever? The Simpsons. Let's put on The Simpsons. And, you know, there's whatever, 21 seasons or whatever, there's a bazillion hours of The Simpsons. So I'm like, um, season two, let's just start there. And there are so many jokes that are just not okay. Like, like, I don't like using the term PC, but like, not, not PC, like would never have been allowed to be on air today, but because it was in the 90s, uh, and like, I only made it through like four episodes before I was like, wow, that, that really didn't age well. And I'm sure if you fast forwarded like 15 seasons, it would be much more okay. Uh, because, you know, there's a massive con jump there. Uh, but, you know, it's the whole point is that we as a people are evolving and as we get older. So, you know, our viewpoints can change. and But that doesn't mean that we can go back and edit things that were made previously to those changes, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and just... You, it's just like if you read Jane Austen or if you read Louise May Alcott or if you read even some mo more modern people, you have to read it in the period that it was written, no matter what period it is. And it's the and same it's with watching too. it. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it's funny, too, because like some people will fail to do that, but then if you go back and you read like Homer, right? Mm-hmm. If you go back far enough, people don't have any problem doing that. But if you're in, like, the 40s, and people will be like, well, that viewpoint is flawed. And I'm like, of course it is. Many things were flawed in the 40s. I mean, you know? I love the Thin Man movies. 
they were hilarious and the mysteries were really fun and it was just and you're seeing all these actors were who became really famous who were really young who were in those movies but there were parts in it that were just really stupid or not acceptable but you like I say you don't throw a great series away just because of small parts you know right, it's like not a, fair a good example of that is uh, Seinfeld you know that was a hugely popular series if you go back and watch that now it's boring well I was never a Seinfeld fan, uh, fan. I was more friends type person uh, but uh, it, it is unwatchable in my opinion yeah I, I'm I'm not a fan of Seinfeld I never I God for me, I'm sorry Seinfeld fans I know they're diehard Seinfeld fans Oh, yeah, no, I do, too. They're, I'm probably going to get, like, nasty grams because of this, but, like, when you go back and watch it now, it's like they made a show about three to four terrible human beings and how badly they treat everyone. And I'm like, this is... I can't watch this. If I want to go for something of that period, I'll... I love Friends. I, I enjoyed that. I got a little bored with the Rachel Ross thing, but when they had... Uh, Monica and Chandler, I turned in for that. That was cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I always wanted them to do something with the uh, the fact that uh, Ross was a paleontologist, like because he drops that like twice over the over the course of the whole show, but they he never does anything with it. Like there's no he's not doing anything as a paleontologist. No, I mean he actually uh, ruined a dinosaur. Don't remember yeah. that episode? He destroyed it. Yeah, no, I remember that. But, you know, but you think it would feature more heavily. I guess that's the dinosaur lover in me. I'm like, paleontologist, but we're not talking about dinosaurs. What's wrong with the scene? <laughs> I know, I know. See, of all the, okay, let's talk about personal life shows that was hap started to happen, that was well written. I enjoyed that show. But all of the yeah. stuff that followed suit that talked about that do the same thing, that talk about our personal lives. See, when they talked about their personal lives, it was their full personal lives on Friends. They didn't just talk about their sex life. They talked about their jobs and getting along with their sister or, you know, or, or having a problem at this thing or that thing. It wasn't just about sex. But after that, all the people that did rip-offs are, are, are made sitcoms later, it was only about sex lives. And I found that really boring. I, if it's only if it's a part of the whole dynamic like Friends was, that was good. But it's just I, it is so one-dimensional, you know. The, the big one that I grew up with was actually Fresh Prince. Like that was my. I watched every episode of that. I loved that show. I like Fresh Prince, but I grew up. When I was growing up, my show, my first show was That Girl because I wanted to be an actress. And my second show was the Mary Tyler Moore show because I wanted her studio apartment. Ah. And I wanted yes. a best friend like Rhoda. I loved Rhoda. She was my, I mean, I loved Mary, but I loved Rhoda. She was my favorite character. That was, that, that is always the, uh, the conundrum with any TV shows is the main characters end up living in these places that you're like, how? How? Oh, that girl. She never had a job for more than a couple of days. She would, like, leave her waitress job for a, an audition, which she wouldn't get. I mean, and she got the newest clothes, the greatest apartment, all this great furniture, beautiful. I mean, her parents had to be paying for it because she never made enough money. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, I didn't realize it when I when I first started watching that girl. I was about eight, so finance was not in my head. Just oh my oh, god, no. isn't that dress pretty? Or oh that, oh she got a new bed. It's really cool. You know, you know, I wasn't thinking in the terms of how much it cost and what kind of a job she had. But when you when it came out on uh, DVD, about I don't know. I think it was about 10, 15 years ago, the the series started coming out on DVD. And that was before you could download and, and see it on streaming. Um, and I first started watching it as an adult. I'm like, how the hell does she have that beautiful apartment? She never has a job for more than a day or two. There's so many TV shows where, where I think that now. Like now that I've had to go out in the real world and rent for, you know, the better part of 10 to 12 years, I'm like, how do they, it's always like some brick loft with like a, you know, like an old mechanical elevator with a raised door. And and I'm like, that would be like a $7,000 a month apartment mm-hmm. in any major city in the U.S. And this person is like, you know, it's my first time in the city and I got an apartment on, uh, you know, $500 that I had in my pocket. And I'm like, what magical land do you live in? Well, it's just like, uh, I think um, for for that girl, her rent, and it was New York City, I mean, the middle of New York City, in Manhattan, and they said it was like $120. And I was like, what yeah. What did this take place in? It's in the 60s. I don't remember what the Okay. Was. But, that, that but cheap even for the 60s. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, $92, yeah, you could get a, a 92 $125. You can get away with that in L.A. They probably had apartments at that rate in L.A. because I've heard that. But in New York? New York where you have to, like, wait for someone to die to get an apartment? There's no way <laughs> it costs that. You know, because, you know, people live in, and then they would give their uh, uh, rental agreement to, like, a, a relative, like a cousin or a niece or, some, or somebody. That, you know, it, it was so hard to get an apartment. People in New York uh, had to uh, look for the obituaries to see, oh, good, this person died. Let me see if I can get their apartment. That's so funny. Isn't it? So I like when I saw that it was 125 for in the first season. I'm like, yeah, right. I mean, like Mary Tyler Moore show. I think her apartment was supposed to be, and hers was a studio apartment at least. I mean, and she had a good job, and she had a job the whole time, and she kept kept going up, even though she had sometimes beg for a raise. Uh, like I said, Anne never actually really had a job for more than like a few days. Is he never it's funny how many sitcoms there are where the main character either can't find work or can't hold down work, mm-hmm. but the show will run for seasons and seasons and they'll somehow subsist in a major city. Yeah, like one of my dreams was to be Anne Marie and live in Manhattan and be an actress. <laughs> that that would be the life, right? Right, and. But, you know, when I got to be about, I wanted, I started wanting to be an actress when I was about 12. And I was like, well, I want to be Anne Marie. I want to have a Donald Hollinger, too. I want the whole thing. 
And my mom and dad goes, honey, that's a sitcom. It's not reality. Uh -huh. It's not even close to reality. And what? I, I mean, even um, Marlo Thomas, when she's talking about it, what do they call it? That it's, um, you, you're giving people like something to live up to, you know, I forgot, there's a name for it that just left my poor old head. Um, but it, it, it's, it's like an ideal, but it's a different, it, I can't, it's a different word. It's like that. It's it's same sort of thing. But um, it's it's something to raise yourself up to. That's That's what the word means. And I can see the word in my head, but I can't really get it. It's weird that when you get older, this happens. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I forget words all the time. But it's just, uh, any, uh, not adversary. That's being, uh, that's being uh, against something. It's something like that. Uh, oh, aspirational? Aspirational, thank you. Oh, that's the word that I've been. That's the word that I've been struggling for. I can see it. I can see it, but it won't come to my tongue. <laughs> but that's that is, what uh, that's what she said. That the that you know it was aspirational. I mean, actually, really, all those clothes were actually Marlo Thomas's because she was doing a show in London, barefoot in the park, and and it was the period of um, when. Uh, London was the center of fashion and all the cool mod clothes was coming out of there and she just brought all those clothes uh, home to her with her to LA and she was wearing them for the first season of that girl was all her own clothes <laughs> I mean she gave credit to the shops that she bought it in in London but um, yeah the and the uh, and the designer would change them up a little bit, you know, to make it look like more like Marlo. Um, yeah. But it was just it, 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 that's the that's the the fashion statement she was making. She wanted her to be a modern young woman and wanting to have a career and not get married right away. Um, it it was in a way a really ahead of its time. I mean, like I said, no one can live like that with no job. Um, but it was a really good show because it was showing a woman who was living her life, who was going for what she wanted in a career, and she wasn't in a hurry to get married. That was ahead of its time. I think the one that, that I loved, and I, I, I didn't watch it when it was on, but there was one season, there was one summer where... I don't even remember what job it was, but I had a job, and the job, the place went out of business, and for whatever reason, it was late enough in the summer where going and getting a new job was just not worth it. So I had, like, three weeks where I was just at home, and my mom was around, and uh, on one of the channels, they started playing Moonlighting, <laughs> and mom and I watched, like, every episode of Moonlighting in, like, a week and a half. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> It's yeah, a it's, fun it's show. Not, it, it, whenever I tell this story, people are like, "Really?" And I was like, "One of my favorite movies of all time is The Fifth Element uh, with Bruce Willis, mm -hmm. and it's the exact same humor level as Moonlighting. It is that Bruce Willis that you get in The Fifth Element." Uh, 
timing the two of them have together are, are, are really good. And obviously it's not science fiction, uh, but it is still, it's extremely well written. Mm -hmm. And humor wise, you know, I, I wish we had gotten more of that Bruce Willis over the years. Um, but, you know, kind of once he, he did Die Hard, yeah, he became action guy, and that he wasn't. Yeah. See, I like the glib Bruce Willis. That's that's the Bruce Willis I like. Um, I love Moonlighting, uh, and I did see it in its first run. Um, but but it was because they were like, it was sort of like an old Cary Grant and Russell and Russell movie called The Front Page, where they're like talking at each other so fast, and every in their talking over each other and uh, it, it was it was that really cool dynamic and yeah. it was that level of real I mean you have to be talented to do that and it, oh, yeah. and the writers have to be talented to write it um, it's it's a very difficult thing to do and the director has to be talented to direct it because it's just it's it's that is a complete everybody get together and do it together, that dynamic of the comedy and, and how fast-paced it was and everything. That's why I enjoy that show. And I, but I, there's also a level of joy, especially from Willis, that, like, in that, you see it in that, you see it in all the early stuff. Like, I would say you see it up through the movie, like, the whole nine yards. Uh, you know, you see it in Die, the Die Hard, the earlier Die Hard films, you see it in The Fifth Element, you, there's, like, a, a joy in his role that later on, and I know he's had health issues in the last few years, but even if you go back, like, 10, 12 years, he just didn't seem to have, after a certain point, um, for whatever reason, you know, life grinds you down or whatever, uh, but it, there's a, almost an element of those old, like, um, Musicals is the wrong word, but that is what I'm kind of aiming at. Where you know somebody walks on camera and there's almost a little dance in their step. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's what I enjoyed about the show, other than just the straight humor, which was very, very good. Uh, but it, it, it's always been one of those weird things that it, it just, when it was first suggested that we watch it, I was like, I don't want to watch that. You know, why would that appeal to me? It, 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 it's not anywhere near anything that I like. Uh, and, you know, two or three episodes in, I was totally hooked. I couldn't stop watching it. Uh, and I was like, it's so pleasant to be around these two characters. You know, I want to see what happens next. And that, to take it back to the original question, was is kind of like any book series that you love. Mm -hmm. You know, like, um, it's, it's totally... Last summer, I, I started reading, I don't even remember why I read it. Some, I think somebody suggested it, and I was like, really? It is, uh, there's a book called The Meg, which is about a megalodon shark, and it's definitely like pseudoscience, trashy monster novel. Uh, but it's been around forever, and there's a, a, there's like eight of them. Uh, and I, I kid you not, I've read that book like four times. <laughs> it, good is not the word I want to use, but I. It fills some kind of a need in me to, because it, you know, it's all talking about all kinds of prehistoric creatures, which I love, but it's happening in modern day, and like it's also got that like horror element of like people being gobbled up by giant sea monsters, 
uh, and it's just enjoyable. And there are things in it that are just like wrong, like paleo paleoanthologically incorrect. Uh, and and I'm like, I don't, I don't care. This is very enjoyable. Uh, and like that, that's kind of like between that and the Dresden Files, those are the ones that I've been reading recently. Um, I kind of been doing. And I I don't I think it's because um, of the pandemic. I I basically read every Agatha Christie book again because of the pandemic, <laughs> just to cheer myself up. But I actually have been stretching myself out for movies and books that I hadn't read before. Um, like uh, one of the things I did was I love Golden Age um, British mysteries but there's authors that that I've never heard of and that I've never read and um, I, I actually uh, I was watching a, a TV show that was streaming on Tubi that was uh, done in the 80s called Inspector Allen and I really liked it I had never heard of it before and I found out oh this is an author of the because I, I I always, if I like something, I have to research it right after. <laughs> anyway, I I looked her up, and apparently she was a, considered one of the four queens of crime of the golden age. She started a little later than the others. She started in the 30s and went into the 70s. No, 80s, 80s. Uh, she was younger than uh, some of the, the other three. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. So I started, uh, her name was Najia Marsh, and Najio Marsh. And um, her books are really good. I'm, I love it. So now I'm, I got onto this podcast that talked about the Golden Age uh, called She Done It. And, and, and now I'm getting all these books I'd never heard of. And so I'm like, piling on a list of all these books I'd never heard of that I want to read and that show led me to another podcast called um, The Lonely Palette and I've always loved I've told you before I always loved fine arts and it's all she, she what she does she's giving the paintings back to the people one painting at a time it's a great podcast and interesting it's really good. I and you're an illustrator, so you probably will, and an artist, so you probably will enjoy it. Um, the Lonely Palette, and then the. I, I'm always interested in how art and art technique is presented in new media, like as compared to traditional school. Um, and it's so like I, I just found a, a YouTube channel, and I, sorry, but I can't even remember what it's called. Terrible with names. But I was looking up a specific technique, and I found this guy, and he explained color theory in like 15 minutes, and it was like this major aha moment after 15 years of being a professional illustrator, and I was like, why was it not presented this way to me in school? Yeah. Because I understood <laughs> exactly what I needed to do, and like to the point where mother color quality of my paintings had a major bump from watching that video one time. And I'm like in the comment section on the video like freaking out because I'm like, I, I went to school for nine years. This is a 15 minute video 
and and he's got a bunch of them that are like that. Like uh, I, I just watched another one on on lost edges and found edges and edge control and how you can use that to guide the viewer's eye around a heavily detailed painting by what like brushing out areas of detail and and merging some lines and and, and blurring and blending and. And I'm just sitting there with my jaw literally open, going, all the years of instruction, all of the various types of teaching that I've had, and this person walks in and is just like, or you could just do this, blah, 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 mic drop, and everything I thought I knew is wrong. Like, I think that's really important to think about, too. And that was another thing about The Lonely Palette that I thought was really interesting. Um, I love all kinds of art. My favorite artist is Monet, but I also like classic and I like modern. I like different things. I like Andy Warhol, but I never understood Jackson Pollock. Um, it just didn't make sense to me. And I know it's supposed to feel it and all this, but it still did. She explained you, it. Oh, go ahead. Have you ever stood in front of a Jackson Pollock painting? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, I just it, it's something I always ask when people uh, talk about Pollock because I have felt the same way until I stood in front of one and it was one of the larger ones. And I was like, Okay, this is different in person. Like in person this hits very differently. Well one of the things that they she said was you it, um one of the people was at the beginning of the show she has the people in the music she's a an art historian and a curator. And so she would have people come in when they come into the museum, focus on a painting and tell them, what do you see? And one of the guys that talked said, well, it's sort of like jazz. And you don't just look at the whole painting, you look like one line. And she continued that, that one line of a Jackson Pollock, you don't look at everything. You look at the different lines to see what they tell you. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at the polyp that she has up, and I'm like, oh, it was like a light going on. And Because I love jazz music. I also understood that. And um, I was like, oh. But it was like I needed them to tell me this because, like, I'm a regular, I, I well, before the pandemic, I was a regular museum goer. I mean, I, and I intend to be again. Um, um, once, you know, uh, there's nothing out there anymore. Um, but one of the things I really found interesting when I went to museums is how much more I got, like, I, I always liked Ansel Adams, but until oh, I saw so his photographs in person, then I, I fell in love with Ansel Adams. <laughs> the, him and he, I love his photography, and the other one is uh, Albert Albert Bierstadt. Yeah. Uh, his paintings. Yeah. Oh, so good. I know. Both and I, are like uh, uh, with with Ansel Adams. It's almost like you can eat his scenery. It's just. His, you don't get it from it online. You really don't. You cannot no. see it. The 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 sharpness, the the contrast of his photography in person is so much more um, dynamic than it is when you see it online. It, it, you just can't appreciate it. You know what I mean? That, that's how I feel about your stats. 
like I. And the funny thing is, I knew his work before I knew his name because I had gone to a couple of uh, museums. One of them is up in Montreal, and they're, they're huge paintings. First of all, um, but he is kind of one of the first real fantasy artists. He's one of the guys that defined the American West, um, like, like really generated that that kind of romanticism of the American West. But his paintings are not what the West actually looks like. Like, everything is larger than life, and uh, you have these, like, storm clouds rolling in, but there's still somehow rays of sun shining down through, and everything is this buttery oil painting. And, uh, everything is hyper-detailed, and colors are rich and exotic. And, and looking at that, and I'm like, I mean, there's no difference what he was doing and modern fantasy card game stuff. Other than that, his stuff is gigantic and an oil painting. Yeah. Uh, and the first few times I ever saw his work, I didn't know who he was. Didn't I mean, I, I read his name on a plaque. It didn't mean anything to me. Uh, but you're just standing in front of like a 10 or 15 foot painting and you're like, Wow. See, one of my dreams someday is to go to see the Van Gogh Art Museum to see his work because it's just, I love his work, but I've only seen one or two in different museums in L.A. and, diff, and a, a one, no, maybe two here in San Diego. Um, I, and I saw some when I was in England. There, they have some in the art museum there too. Not many. I mean, most of it's in. Um, I forgot the name of the city, where he was from. Boy, do you know what city Van Gogh's from? <laughs> I don't. I don't off the top of my head. Anyway, that's what his art museum is. I'm terrible with art history. Oh, it's, it's just. But the thing is, it's just. Um, I. I love some of, I, it's, I have to be honest, I don't love everything Van Gogh did. I don't love everything any artist does. It's impossible because they're in, they're in good moods and bad moods, just like everybody else. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, it's just like. I feel that way about Andy Warhol and Picasso. Like, uh, they have some good stuff and they have some atrocious stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's some Warhols I love and there's some that I just don't understand or like. Um, and Picasso, there, I think I like certain periods, and other periods I can't stand. And that's a long it, time, it, his periods. It's funny, because uh, friends of mine who have gone to museums and stuff with me, I there are certain types of art that I love, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm a fantasy illustrator, so I love detail. I really don't go in for, like, truly abstract stuff. Like, if I'm in a museum and I find a great canvas with a black dot on it and it's selling... I don't understand that. I still... I'm trying to be open and I don't get it. But I went to this private uh, gallery in in D.C., you know, probably eight, eight, ten years ago now. Um, And we were there because they had a collection of Degas' The Dancers series. Mm -hmm. Oh, Uh, I love Degas. Oh. Gorgeous paintings, gorgeous paintings, and and we went upstairs. But the thing that really struck me, and I mean, probably because I, I was in school at the time, uh, and I had I had written a paper on the artist Mark Rothko for an art history class. 
very large. The colors were extremely vibrant, and in that very tiny space, the way the space was lit, you had a, a reaction to the colors. Uh, and I was like, see, now this I understand. This I can see why this type of more abstract work is special. Um, as opposed to walking through a gigantic room with 40 paintings that are hanging in it, and then you just kind of have a thing that's thrown on a wall. Um, but it was it was a cool little moment because you turn the corner and you don't expect them to be there, and then they're there, and that's that's kind of cool. That's sort of like the way Ansel Adams was in his gallery I went to, in the in mu um, the museum I went into, in the section he's it, you turned a corner and there he was. There's there was his photo photography. It's the whole wall. It was it was like whoa. <laughs> that is super cool. I would I would love to. I don't think I've ever seen his stuff in person. I've seen it online. I've seen it in books, and I've seen it in documentaries. Um, I uh, I was fortunate enough to take uh, like a history of photo class in um, in undergraduate because after after like three art history classes, you're dying to take any other type of creative history class, like, like really. Something that's not gonna make you memorize names and dates. Uh, and so there was a split class, which was actually uh, two semesters long, and the first half was the history of photo, and the second half was the history of film, which was pretty cool. Uh, but I remember that they, they featured Ansel Adams pretty heavily during the, the history of photo. Um, and I kind of fell in love with, there, there, especially his clouds, there's this like, um, almost like he was photographing giant edible chunks of cotton candy. <laughs> like that's the way I can describe it. It, it. They look different than other people's cloud photography. They're beautiful. They really are really nice. I, I have to ask, um, there's this uh, Australian author who, um, who wrote a series of mysteries under the name of Alex Clayton Mysteries, and she's an, the character's an art historian, and she solves mysteries using her eye as an art historian. And the first one um, is called um, The Portrait of Molly Dean, and it is such a good book. It got, um, I interviewed her for my show, and then I just fell in love with her writing. Um, it is the um, the first book, this first book, Molly Dean was a, a murder victim in Australia in the 1920s. And people poo-pooed her because she didn't want to get married, and she uh, wanted, uh, she was a teacher, but she wanted to be a writer. She wanted to write novels and stuff like uh, she and she she wanted an independent life, and people were like, they they basically said she was um, a scarlet woman because uh, she was hanging out with bohemian artists. She was in love with an artist, and um, and that she wanted she didn't want to get married. And she wanted to be, and I'm like, God, she's. She's a terrific woman. As I'm reading it, I'm like, you are dumb. <laughs> These people who are <laughs> yeah. judging her, I'm like, what are you talking about? She's amazing. Anyway, so the Alex 
Clayton is in the 90s, and Molly is in the 20s. So the story goes back and forth between Alex by, uh, fascinated by Molly Dean, and she buys a portrait of her. And, and basically, it sort of inspired her to research and find out something about, you know, try to help find, solve this unsolved mystery. Now, the mystery is still unsolved, but in the book, it gives you the satisfaction of solving it. And she explains that it's fictional, that part of it. Um, but it's so good. And, I mean, have you ever read her? It's, it, and it actually I, gives I, you, a, her books give you an appreciation of Australian art that I've, it, it just exploded in my head, all the beautiful art. I would bring up the pictures as I'm li reading it. So I'm just wondering if you've ever heard of her. I'm never hearing about her, but I, I definitely will check her out. That sounds really, really interesting. Oh, it's fascinating. It is a murder mystery series. It's not science fiction. <laughs> well, I mean, that's fine. I, I have a, a, a pretty wide... Uh, sometimes I have to be led to new material, if that makes sense. Uh -huh. Otherwise, I, I stay in my wheelhouse, but don't we all? Yes. They, uh, there's... Um, there was a character that was introduced in the old Star Wars novels, uh, and uh, he was a he was a bad guy, and his name is Grand Admiral Thrawn, and he was originally written by the author Timothy Zahn, who's a great science fiction uh, author, uh, and it's one of those bad guys that's like Darth Vader level awesome, like very deep, super oniony, very layered, but one of his big things that unlike all of the other Imperial bad guys who were, you know, murdering badasses, basically, he was, I mean, he was very physically capable, but he was also incredibly smart, and he would analyze the art of his adversaries and learn how to defeat them through that. And it was this really major point of his character in the books, and they they just kind of brought him back into some of the animated content, and he's going to be brought into the live-action content uh, in the next year or so. And I was so tickled because they actually brought that aspect of his character with him into this new iteration of him where he's analyzing the art of the good guys and, and kind of learning how to get the better of them through analyzing the art. It was really, really interesting that they kept that part in. Uh, and I, I loved that because it was such a unique thing. Uh, like, he could tell how people were going to act based on the art of the culture they came from. And it was just something you don't see in science fiction. You know, you don't see a, a character who's both a force physically, but also so mentally powerful and, and culturally wise that he really becomes terrifying because it's like, how do you beat something like that? <laughs> uh, and I, I found it, I found it a very, very interesting character study. Um, but to have a bad guy who could use art to thwart the good guys was pretty cool. It's a different concept, I have to say. <laughs> it, it's very different, it's, especially for that genre. You know, because uh, Star Wars is that like pulpy you know, uh, science fantasy, uh, and, and not many of the characters are deep on that level, and he really was, and I, I, I just really, I remember, uh, when, 
so hard because I have a whole episode where he goes into that really pretty heavily, you know, talking about art and explains based on the brush strokes and the iconography and all this stuff, like exactly what they're going to do. And then the, the good guys do exactly what he says they're going to do. And I was like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> a lot of people haven't read the books that are at this point, like 15 years old, 16 years old. Um, but I remember, I remember finding it, it I found it, it's a trilogy of books and it, it was really funny because I was, I was pretty young when I found the third one in a, in a, in a used book sale. And I, it was one of the first books that I ever purchased on my own, actually. So it, it would be much older than that. It would be much older than that. But I remember like whether my, my local library was having like a, we're getting rid of books that have been signed out one too many times type sale. And I would go every year. And the third book was called The Last Command. And I bought it with my own money. I was very proud. Uh, and I read it. But I had, like, I missed the part on the front cover that said it was the exciting third book conclusion to the award-winning whatever, whatever. Uh, and so I read it, and nothing made any sense because I hadn't read the first two books. <laughs> uh, and I was so confused. But I was also so enamored with the characters uh, and it, it was, it's like a full year before I, I really, like, sussed out that there were two more books and, like, got my hands on them. And I was like, oh, everything makes so much more sense now. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, a book that only a kid could make. Uh, but, like, that was that was one of those innocent, innocent, like, uh, mess-ups that I, I you make when you go and you discover a book and you read it and you fall in love with it. But you're just like... I'm missing something here because, <laughs> like, they're referencing things that are just not in this book. Uh, and I, I, I will, I will always remember that being the first book that I was allowed to purchase on my own with my own money, and just being totally unaware that it was part of a trilogy for a, a good long time. Uh, I used to love get books like that. I mean, that was part of the fun. Is when you were a kid, the two places. We would, um, there would be a school sale of books. No, there's three places. School sale of books, the library sale of books, and then, um, and going to the library. Oh, and we also had what they called a uh, mobile uh, library, and it used to come around the neighborhood, and you would check out books from that. But that, oh, that's, that's cool. disappeared. I don't think, we don't have it in California anymore. But it was that's fun. Cool. That. Yeah, I would... I wouldn't mind if that came back. Um, we had the Scholastic Book Fairs for sure, uh, and then we had the the kind of Bible books. I, I would I remember my parents would always get upset because I mean obviously they're teachers they pro super pro book, but I had this thing where I would always buy the old atlases because they were like a dollar, you know, like nobody was buying them, and I ended up with way too many. And I wasn't doing anything with them. It's just something romantic about old maps. Uh, and I would always come home from the library sales with these ancient, and not ancient in a cool way, just like obsolete ancient, uh, books of maps of the world. And they would just go onto the stack of other things of the exact same type that I would never do anything with. And it, like when I finally moved out of my parents' house after high school, they uh, 
with having to find a place to donate like a billion copies of National Geographic and and a thousand or so uh, atlases that people were just like, hey, what are you going to do with that? And I'm like, I don't know, wallpaper my house maybe because it's an album. Well, National Geographic, I kind of understand the atlases. That's interesting. <laughs> it, was, it was something about the aesthetic because they were, they were all old enough to be yellowed. So it was that, like, when you find a truly old book, you know, the the, the, the tome, the romantic uh, notion of the tome, they were cheap. Sometimes I didn't even have to pay for them. Sometimes the library would just give them to me because it's like, nobody else is going to buy these. Um, and I've always loved, like, you know, when you read Lord of the Rings and in the, in the front of the book there's that map yeah. of, like, all of Middle Earth. I, I always loved that stuff. Uh, and... Uh, Interestingly enough, I, I've never done that as an illustrator. There are illustrators who specialize in fantasy maps. And I I think I've done one in all of my years doing this. Um, but that was that was definitely I was I was the type of I was like collector when I was a kid. So I would hoard books and maps and uh, 80s toys like uh, original Star Wars action figures, Transformers. Um, I kind of grew out of that in my 20s, um, although I still have a bunch of the, bunch of the old Transformers stuff. Um, <laughs> um, I, I'm going to change the, the tone, of the, well, not the tone, but the direction of the conversation. Fair enough. I wanted to ask you about the Illustrators of the Future contest. How did you sure. get involved in that? Uh, how did I get involved in that? I don't remember who told me about it, but somebody told me about it. Somebody was like, you should enter this. It was um, previous to that. It was kind of a low point in my career. Um, I wasn't really certain of what I was doing. I was doing a lot of like really low-end like tabletop RPG work. It wasn't paying well. Um, and I was having a hard time getting into that mid-level uh, job circuit. And I was like, what the heck? I know my work is pretty good. I'll apply. So I applied and then kind of totally forgot about it. Uh, and I, I, I went kind of on my way and a little bit of time passed. Not too much time because it's quarterly. Uh, and one morning, I'm in Seattle uh, at the time, uh, and I'm on a treadmill in the gym adjacent to my apartment and my phone rings um, and it's one of the lovely people from from there and I, I don't remember exactly who called um, I kind of want to say it was Joni uh, but she just started raving about how much she loved my work uh, and it, it, it kind of knocked me for a loop uh, because at that point I was largely no one in the industry um, and and I wasn't used to that reaction um, and I don't mean that in a self-deprecating way it's the truth um, and she was like you know you you won for this quarter and then uh, we're going to pair you with a, a writer and uh, you're going to you're going to illustrate one of the writer's stories and then uh, there was like a whole 
Angeles. That, but that, that all that was later. So I did the the illustration uh, for uh, the writer's work, and I sent that in. Um, and then it kind of the rest went from there. And 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 it was a very interesting experience because they they fly you out to Los Angeles and you have a week of kind of. Uh, lectures from notable illustrators. The authors have lectures from notable authors. Um, and you also have a, a number of classes uh, uh, that go into like the business side of things um, that were run by a, a, a lovely couple, Echo and Laz. Um, and they're both good friends of mine now. Um, and, and I mean, at that point, I had only been to Los Angeles one time in my life, uh, so I had an absolute blast. It was a, it was a week away, and then the whole week kind of ends in like uh, your very own version of the Oscars. <laughs> Everybody gets to dress up in like tuxedos and nice dresses, and there's like a hall that is rented out, really swanky hall, um, and you everybody gets to go up and give like an acceptance speech and uh for me personally um uh, you know I, we we talked a little bit uh before and i had mentioned that i have not had the easiest road in terms of educators being supportive of fantasy art um in the in the in the old school world of illustration, fantasy art was often looked at as kind of lowbrow. You know, it wasn't editorial, it wasn't magazine, whatever, whatever, whatever. It's not children's book, even though it's extremely prevalent and you can make decent money in it, and it's extremely used by uh, film and games and all the modern entertainment media. Um, and one of my presenters uh, was Larry Elmore. Um, of all of the classic book cover for everything fame. And he was just the sweetest guy and so kind. And, I mean, there's a million memories that will stick with me, but him presenting my award to me was, I was like, this is crazy. You know, like, uh, talk about meeting one of your heroes and having him absolutely live up to everything and just be like the kindest person. Um, and then after, after the week was done and we all went home, the entire staff, who were great, just kind and caring and very supportive, you know, we've stayed in touch via social media and they still follow my career, which, you know, I mean, they don't absolutely have to but they do and they really care and they want you to succeed and that's kind of very special um, because that's not something that's just everywhere in the industry you know I mean nobody wishes ill on others but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have your back and that they really want to see you like reach all of your goals and that's to have a whole group of people that want you to succeed that much it's pretty cool. That's beautiful. It and really is. It was very nice. So you enjoyed your week. Uh, did your author find her book right away? 
Um, we're coming to the end. I, I just mm -hmm. want to know, do you have a website? I do. Uh, it's uh, illustratedpixels.com. And, and, oh, go ahead. Uh, you can also find uh, Illustrated Pixels on Instagram, uh, Twitter, or just Alexander Gustafson on Facebook. Um, but yeah, illustratedpixels.com is, is my website, and there are links there to all the social media stuff and things. Actually, you answered my second question. You gave what your social media was. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I try to keep all the, the branding similar. There's also a link on there to uh, my Patreon. It's a, you know, a wee baby Patreon, and I neglect it heavily. But uh, you know, if you want insight into how I make things or uh, personal pieces, then um, you know, people can join that. Great. Uh, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to come and chat with me. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. <laughs>